so glad you're here. If you're here physically with us, so glad. Um, and if you're with us online, whether you're watching us live or whether you're watching this when it's recorded and saved, we're so glad that you've joined us in worship this morning. I want to take you back to AD 95. AD 95, like the first century. It was a terrifying era in which to live. And I want to just kind of set the scene for the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible. Uh, the conclusion to our 12-week series that we've been in, the big picture, Genesis through Revelation. A.D. 95, uh, Domitian, Emperor Domitian had taken over the government of Rome and begun his reign of terror in A.D. Uh, 81. Uh, he came to power by a rigged election. How about that? Um, <laughs> It's actually, it's actually suspected that he hastened the demise of his brother uh, Titus in order to take the throne. Um, the Senate hated him. Uh, the people in general hated him. The army loved him. But two years into his reign of terror, he gave the entire army a one-third salary increase. <laughs> and, and they liked him fine. Uh, he showed up on the battlefields in, in Great Britain um, and in Germany, um, but he was a terrifying individual. Some even questioned his sanity. Characteristic of his reign from AD 81 until his, um, his uh, death, he was, he was assassinated in AD 96. Um, characteristic of his reign was a, a massive building campaign. He wanted to be immortalized in stone and in structures. Um, even against the advice of his closest advisors. Um, so great was his obsession that he had so many projects underway. At one point, he, he brought the Roman Empire to the brink of financial ruin. Um, so in order to uh, bolster the imperial reserves, he did what leaders sometimes do. Um, he increased taxes. <laughs> um, particularly hard hit because of the way the taxes were implemented were the Jewish people and by extension, the Christians. These were tough days to be alive. Um, scary days to be alive. If taxes weren't enough to create some antagonism between the Jewish people and, and by extension the Christians and uh, the, the government, uh, Domitian declared himself to be God. Now he wasn't the first Roman emperor to do that, but typically they kind of, they kind of waited until the guy was dead before they really conferred on him all the rights and privileges thereunto of, of deity. Domitian was not going to wait for that. Uh, so he, he insisted that people refer to him as a dominus et deus, master and God. Uh, you can just greet me, and I'm master and God. <laughs> um, he, he would come into the Roman Senate in full ceremonial dress. Uh, he... He liked to parade. Uh, he would show up at the annual uh, Greek-style games in Greek dress, but wearing a golden crown and insisted the other judges to the games also wear these golden crowns that featured him amidst the images of the Roman gods. These are scary days. Um, you can almost feel the tension building for the church. And these counter declarations between Caesar is Lord and Jesus is Lord. 
What are you going to do with that? The Apostle John was pastoring a, the church in Ephesus in these days. So here we are, 60 plus years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And John was the youngest of the disciples. He's now the only remaining, the only disciple remaining alive, the only one that had walked with Jesus among, of, of, the, of the 12. He's a senior man, he's seen so much of the world, he's seen so much, if you read some of the accounts of his life, you wonder, did John ever get to the place where he said, okay, Lord, I've had enough. Like, could I just cut a, would you just cut me some slack here, give me a break in the midst of representing you? Because Ephesus, where he's pastoring, came to be a hot spot for the persecution. Domitian had commissioned a statue and a temple to be constructed in, his, uh, in honor of him in Ephesus. And so that became prominent in the, the, the life and the culture of anyone in Ephesus. Worship Domitian and live or refuse and face a very real possibility of a cruel public execution. Eusebius, one of the church fathers, writing in 300 AD, about 200 years later, he wrote this. The teaching of our faith glowed so brightly at that time that even writers alien to our belief cited the persecutions and the martyrdoms in their histories. This is the setting of the book of Revelation. The final book of the Bible, the culmination of the big picture God with us, Genesis through Revelation. Uh, other er early church fathers testified, this is the period of time it was written in, toward the end of Domitian's reign. These were dark days for the church. In addition to the political unrest and intrigue and the economic hardships that heavy taxes had put on people, the, the serious threats against the lives of, of anyone who maintained the conviction that Jesus is Lord. On top of all of that, the church was dealing with disillusionment. Jesus said he was coming back for his church. And here we are 60 years plus since that. And where is he? If you're singing your worship out of the Psalms, maybe you'd be, maybe you'd be saying, how long, O oh Lord? <laughs> how long, O oh Lord, until your deliverance comes? We get to the end of the book of Revelation, and you hear that cry again saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. So Jesus, this morning, come. Even as you've heard us in our songs, even as you've been drawing near to us in the reflections of our hearts to you in worship, come. Come, visit your church this morning. We ask in your precious and wonderful holy name. Amen. These were dark days for the church. The church, and it's to, to church in such a time as this that God gives the book of Revelation. I mean, even more than that, it's no, it's no, kind of by chance that it's the final book of the New Testament, the final book of the entire Bible, and that the threads kind of find their, their collection together that we've been chasing down since Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Now, I've already spoken about the, uh, the, the fact that this is an era much like ours. I'm sure you hear the allusions 
Uh, the book of Revelation was written into an era that was much like ours. Now, and I also want you to see it this morning that it was written to churches like ours. Churches with strengths and weaknesses. A, a very real church. And, and then I want to thirdly give you a bit of orientation to some of the images uh, that, that shock, uh, that are intended to reassure that we find in the book of Revelation. And then finally I want to invite you this morning I want to invite you to just hold your hands out and receive uh, the comfort that is very real that Jesus intends you to receive through this letter. That's the outline for the sermon this morning. You can download it to the uh, OEC smartphone app. You can download it from our website. Follow along, make a few notes as we go. The church was living in perilous times. And, And this book reveals something that we don't see quite so clearly in most of the rest of the scriptures. It reveals unseen spiritual forces operating behind the scenes of history, controlling events and outcomes, and preeminently God at work in the middle of all of that. And I just ran through that list of threats that the first century church was dealing with, and, and, and some of them sound just all too familiar for us as, as we begin to think about the close of 2020. That theirs was an era like ours. Here's how the big book begins. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, I'm in the New International Version, by the way, if you're looking it up digitally. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Blessed, blessed. Because the time is near. If I jump down to verse nine, chapter one. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he he was in isolation. He'd been exiled. He'd been sent away. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The book was written in an era like ours, but it was written to churches like ours. Strengths and weaknesses. Last last Sunday, Pastor Craig just gave us a little taste of what it might have been like to be a church that would receive a letter from one of the apostles. A letter with with correction, a letter with instruction, a letter, letter with encouragement. The the book of Revelation opens with letters such as these. Seven of them to seven churches. They're short missives. Post-it note, if you will. To these seven churches, John, the disciple of Jesus, the final of the twelve, still alive. He has this vision, and he's told to, by the angel in the vision, he's told to write down what he experiences, what he sees. And when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, he's told not to seal it up, not to hide it. He's He's to share it. And he's told that this is the revelation from Jesus to these seven churches in ancient Asia Minor or or modern-day Turkey. Um, It's kind of interesting. I'll put a map up 
for you to see that, that the churches are addressed in the sequence that they would be visited by someone delivering this letter to those churches. They would, they would go to Ephesus and Smyrna, Perga, Mum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, the, 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 the route that would be common for them to take on the Roman road. So these are the first recipients of this letter. Uh, each church receiving letter receives a commendation, all seven of them commended. Five of the seven also receive a correction. Some of them are fairly stern. Uh, only Smyrna and Philadelphia are, are not corrected. And then all of them are encouraged to stand firm in their faith in Jesus. To be anchored in Jesus in the midst of, some of them have already begun to experience persecution, such as the church in Ephesus. Others are being warned that persecution is coming. So that's the beginning of the book of Revelation, but then we get to the part that's really fun and very confusing for most of us as we read through it. I remember I was gonna do a series, a multiple week series from the book of Revelation a number of years ago, and I had a friend say, oh, don't do that. That book scares me. And indeed, there are some startling images in it, but it's actually, that's actually the opposite of what the book was intending. So when we understand the book, we realize that it's actually spoken to bring encouragement and comfort to churches like ours. So let me give you a little bit of orientation to, uh, to, to, to images that shock and yet reassure. Uh, if, I were to, if I were to put a picture, an abstract painting or an impressionistic, well, how about that? Look at this here. Uh, isn't that lovely that, that we have an impressionistic painting here by our own Lan He Cho? If I were to ask you to, to interpret that piece of artwork, like assign meaning to it, uh, you, you would struggle. In fact, I'm, I'm gonna kind of use some intentionally absurd language here, so don't hurt yourself trying to figure this out. Um, what does this mean? Um, if I were to play, an, if I were to invite the band to come back and, and play an instrumental piece of music, and say, tell me what that means. Uh, or, or I was gonna invite Catherine to come and, and, and dance and say, say, tell me what that means. Of course, we would we'd say, that's absurd. Now, it communicates. Um, in fact, it often communicates in ways that defy language, like speaks beyond what we could possibly put into words. It, it's gonna stir emotion. It may stir feelings that we, we want or don't want. Uh, we, we could make observations about art. Uh, we, we could describe the colors that we see. We could describe the, the expressions that are found in it. We, we might even be able to describe how it makes us feel. But, but you can never explain the meaning of art. Uh, a Monet, a Van Gogh, uh, a Len Hicho. Um, but we, we could bring Handel's music or Beethoven's music or, or Mozart's music and, and to mean something specific is gonna defy language, and that's what we've got in the book of Revelation. We've got language that is artistic prose. It's intending to paint a picture for us that evokes emotion, that stirs feeling, uh, that, that, that issues ultimately comfort and encouragement, but, but it's gonna defy, defy literal interpretation at, at, at least many turns. So, so, so let me kind of 
get step out of the abstract and into something a little more concrete for you here. Uh, some of you are saying, thank you, please. Revelation chapter five, verse six. Here, here's what, 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 what we, we, we read. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. There we go, so we've got seven horns, seven eyes, and and he said, let the little children come unto me. (laughs) Right? Like this is a different picture of Jesus than I have ever imagined if all I've ever read are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There we see Jesus enfleshed, Jesus incarnate, Jesus constrained by humanity in order to reveal God to us. But what would he look like if he stripped away the humanity? What would you look like if you stripped away the limitations of his incarnation? Revelation 1, verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, each down, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I guess so. Then he placed his right hand on me and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. We're going to come back to that turn of phrase through the Advent season. Do not be afraid. Fear not. But but here we're painted an image by John that that, that, that is only reminiscent of what we encountered of Jesus in the Gospels. This is, this is a picture of, that evokes emotion, which calls forth wonder and, and inspires awe as we contemplate what's being painted for us. But we're also going to encounter the fact that Revelation is more than mere art. It's more than just art. Um, this is also language which speaks about present and future things. It's this unveiling. We refer to it as as prophecy. The heart of God exposed, the future of God revealed, at least in part, at least sometimes. Sometimes he gives us a glimpse into specific events and people. Sometimes it's it's more representative and more general. So so we've got artistry, uh, we've got prophecy, but the book of Revelation is also written in the context. Now, I've spent a little bit of time describing the historical context written to the first century church, struggling under the, uh, the cruel reign of Domitian. But, but there's also a literary context. Uh, this, this, this language is strange to us. It's unique in the New Testament. But it actually is in dialogue with books of the Bible that we find in the Old Testament. 
John is interpreting, he has this vision, right? He sees these otherworldly things that he has no frame of reference to really be able to understand. And, and so the language that he starts to draw from is language that he's familiar with from the, the prophet Daniel, Ezekiel. And, and these, these, the, the language becomes in conversation with each other. We, we, if we read them together, we get a little fuller understanding of, of what it is that John has experienced. And, and, and so in all of this, we've got one part artistry, we've got one part prophecy, we have one part historical context, we've got one part literary context. And even more than this, the book of Revelation, is, is, it comes at the close of the Bible. Like it's the final book in the New Testament and it provides continuity through the New Testament. We see it opening with this revelation of Jesus, baby Jesus, come in Matthew and in Luke, uh, Christmas. And closing with a, a, an unveiled picture of Jesus, mighty and powerful, fearsome. But it's more than that. This, this is tying together the threads that we've been chasing since Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Like there are threads that are, are connecting through all of this. And we, we say, what are those threads? What is it that we've been seeing? As we've been, that God has not forgotten us. That though we were separated from him by sin, he made the promise that he would intervene in history and he would be there and he would be able. And in case you thought maybe baby Jesus, meek and mild, was too meek and mild to address the sin problems and the evil present in our world, let's unveil him. Let's see the brilliance of him. Let's see the, the stunning majesty that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God is active in our world in a very good, redemptive work, even right now, even in the midst of what the church is experiencing, 95 AD and 2020. Let me just try to put a bow on this for you this morning. You'll remember that the book of Genesis begins in a garden. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, their, their sin tragically separated humanity from God. And God in his mercy evicted them from the garden, evicted them from his presence to preserve them until such a time as he could, could safely deal with the problem of sin. And in his mercy, he has prevailed in that and this has been a patient, enduring work that has proceeded ever since. And then as we stepped into the Gospels, all of the Old Testament hope and expectation was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And even then, he, he did not meet expectations. What God intended to do was beyond the imaginings of anyone who had thought of such things. And now as we get to the close of this extraordinary work, Genesis through Revelation, the Bible, God's revealing of himself to us, we, we're, we're, we're encountering Jesus revealed in, in power images, horns, swords, eyes of fire, riding mighty white stallions, affecting justice in the world, calling the world to account, calling the, the governments to account, redeeming the repentant, 
And in all of this, he's leading us back to a garden. The Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. It begins in the Garden of Eden and it concludes in the garden of the city of God. Follow along as I read this. Revelation chapter 22, verse one. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, and on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. There's, there's garden imagery here. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign with him forever. The, 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 there's crops, there's beauty, there's intimacy with God, there's a restoration of what was lost in all of this. And we come then to Revelation 22, verse 12, and we realize that this ends in a garden, but the final punctuation point is an invitation. Revelation 22, verse 12. Look, I am coming soon, Jesus speaking. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of Daniel, of David, and the bright and morning star. Here's the invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty Come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. This is the invitation that the first century church was receiving. Take this letter, round of the churches. Make sure they all get this. Yes, yeah, political intrigue, economic uh, disaster, <laughs> looming, uh, uh, military threat, threat for the churches but remember who the one is who's in, in, in control of it all. The, the one who is master, redeemer, savior. Come, come. I mean, it reminds me of Matthew where, where he says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. You know, I've often read that passage through the lens of the, the gospels. You know, I think of, of Jesus, good shepherd, you know, drawing people to himself, children on his knee, gentle, meek, mild. The one who invites us to come and receive rest, unveiled of the limitations, uh, uh, the restraints of his incarnation, 
is also powerful and he is fearsome. He is mighty to save. He is eternal. And all that is, is in his purview. It's in his care and his keeping. There's an old chorus that I used to lead kind of on a regular basis, I guess, called Be Magnified, that I just think puts a helpful period to the end of this. Because too often I have found that I, we, the church, um, put Jesus in a box. And we, we, we envision him being like us with our limitations, with our frailties, with our failings. And we, we forget that he is so much more than all of this. Just receive this if you would, please. I have made you too small in my eyes. Oh Lord, forgive me. I have believed in the lie that you were unable to help me. But now, Lord, I see my wrong. Heal my heart and show yourself strong. And in my eyes and with my song, oh Lord, be magnified. Oh Lord, be magnified. Be magnified, oh Lord. You are highly exalted and there is nothing you can't do. Lord, my eyes are on you. Be magnified. Oh, Lord, be magnified.